Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Nicole Fabricant, author of Fighting to Breathe, Race, Toxicity, and the Rise of Youth Activism in Baltimore, published last year by University of California Press. Dr. Fabricant, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Sure. So my background um, is that I grew up in North Jersey, Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is a first generation, very working class area of New Jersey, predominantly Latinx. And um, actually, I write about this in the book because I think that my history growing up in that community and my dad was always an organizer and a fierce warrior for social justice. Um, He founded a coalition for homeless people in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And I grew up inside hospitality homes and soup kitchens and on my dad's back as he was organizing and fighting for uh, protections for poor people and for homeless. And I think it kind of shaped my even early on quest, right, to understand, but also to be part of movements. Um, And so in some ways, uh, going to public schools in Elizabeth and hearing stories, right, from parents who are working in some of the factories, we were also an environmental justice community. So I very much remember walking to school and smelling sulfur and you know we couldn't you know we characterized it as smells like eggs because it was uh, smoke emanating from some of the factories close to our high school and so that lived and like embodied experience really did define some of my research questions but also my commitment to being an activist anthropologist because I never felt it was enough to simply write about and think about, but rather had to be part of some of the social change that was happening. Um, So yeah, I think my background very much did define um, 
the kinds of topics I wanted to study, but also the movements I chose to invest and pour kind of um, my labor and commitment into. Okay, so set the scene for this book. What is the South Baltimore Peninsula and why is it a place of concern from an environmental justice point of view? Sure. So um, Baltimore is a really interesting city. I always say coming from northern New Jersey that I feel like I moved uh, to a southern like we always joke about, you know, Maryland being uh, north essentially of the Mason-Dixon line. But there are times coming from New York City that it definitely does feel like parts of the south. Um, it actually Baltimore City is an incredibly um, divided city, like racially. So we were the first city to adopt residential um, codified legislation that segregated communities. Uh, parts of West Baltimore and East Baltimore were initially redlined in the 1930s. And that historic dimension of disinvestment has um, set in some respects uh, the context for the contemporary and the present uh, day. So South Baltimore doesn't quite fit into the way academics or journalists or even people theorizing urban space have talked about the city of Baltimore because they tend to focus on West and East, which a colleague and friend of mine talked about as the wings on a map. They literally look like the wings of a butterfly. Um, so he describes it as the black butterfly. They are areas that have been historically deprived of resources um, versus parts of the city that have been engines of gentrification and white accumulation of capital and wealth. And obviously it doesn't always map so neatly um, because 63% of Baltimore is black. So our representatives in the city council and government are all kind of, you know, black essentially I would describe them they're Democrats but they certainly have a pro-business pro-development um you know sort of at times it just feels like a neoliberal uh you know city structure in some in some senses so you know in the ways I think about South Baltimore it oftentimes is not even thought of it's not characterized as part of uh, West or East Baltimore, it's well below Inner Harbor and the downtown area. It also is an area, the peninsula has not only been disinvested, because when industries fled, they left, you know, they ripped out kind of economic engines. So South Baltimore um, was an area where during its economic heyday, World War One and Two, there was a lot of shipbuilding, unionized jobs, steel, Bethlehem Steel was located. So there was this vibrant industrial um, sort of development model, right? And during deindustrialization and post-deindustrialization, you know, it's become more and more economically depressed, that region, but also it has been the hub of much of the waste industry. So all of our incinerators are located in South Baltimore. Um, we also have the largest landfill in South Baltimore. Chemical fertilizer companies engulf the 
Peninsula. And we have the second largest uh, coal export on the East Coast. So we have uh, two rail lines, CSX and Norfolk Southern, bringing enormous amounts of coal via rail and exporting using our waterways. And all that's occurring in South Baltimore. So in Curtis Bay, there's an open air coal pier a thousand feet from a recreation center and residential housing. So geographically, I always say that um, this is an area that has been understudied, undervalued, not necessarily a part of our mapping, right, of the city of Baltimore, but it's also been a wasteland in terms of dumping practices and overburdening. So environmental justice folks um, talk about it often as sacrifice zones, and I would say the whole peninsula has historically been a sacrifice sacrifice zone. Um, and many communities have been displaced as a result of some of the industries that have moved in. So I hope that gives a sense of how the southern tip of Baltimore fits into that kind of racialized landscape of the city. Yeah. And so the book is focusing on activism by high school students from this area of Baltimore. So what do young people bring to environmental justice activism that's distinctive or special? Sure. So um, I got involved in the movement when I first moved to Baltimore City around 2012. And this was the beginnings really of this youth driven environmental justice. There's always been environmental justice concerns around lead poisoning, particularly in West and East Baltimore, chromium and soils, heavy metals and soils as a result of the industrial development model of the city. But really in South Baltimore, I would say um, the youth galvanized a lot of attention when there was a proposal to build the nation's largest trash to energy incinerator a mile from their high school. And I actually read an article about this group called Free Your Voice. And I was fascinated by the fact that young kids, sophomores, juniors, even seniors were um, getting together to study and understand what incineration does uh, in terms of like, what would it emit into our air? What are the profit margins tied to incineration? Who's benefiting from incineration? Why would we build another incinerator? So they were just a group of young people asking and posing these questions when they found out that there was a plan to ship garbage in from all over the United States to South Baltimore. And it started as an after school program where they would sit around, they would discuss, they would learn, they would bring in some public health experts and talk about heavy metals and lead. And it really evolved into a much larger campaign, which was called the Energy Answers um, campaign. Energy Answers was the transnational corporation that essentially um, was going to build this massive incinerator in the Fairfield industrial area. And at the time, Governor O'Malley uh, was a Democratic governor. He totally supported this plan. He actually got contributions, uh, dollar amounts from the uh, transnational corporation. The students were tracking all of this. Um, the check that went into his account um, from Energy Answers. And it was fascinating to kind of watch young people do commodity chain and, you know, political economic analysis, while at the same time struggle to understand what are the impacts in terms of human health, 
And so they began as they were digging around, um, trying to understand you know, what would be a savvy political strategy. Um, so they found out that many public entities, libraries, uh, schools in Baltimore City bought into this proposal through purchasing agreements. The plan was just the plan. It hadn't been built, but they already signed off and committed to getting cheap energy through trash incineration and were essentially funding this project. And so when they found that out, they realized, oh, if we could get these folks to divest from this as a toxic industry, then essentially we would take some of the economic incentive out. And it was very contentious because there were a lot of folks that felt that this would bring jobs, right, to a deindustrialized area and that it really began um, this battle between jobs and labor unions and environmental justice activists. Um, and so the kids really built out this incredible divestment campaign, which I was a part of and watched. And they used art and creative mechanisms to occupy the board of education's office and say, how could schools support something like this? So I must say that trash to energy in Maryland for those outside of the state of Maryland is considered renewable energy. It um, is classified as tier one renewable. So it's on par with wind and solar, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, but nevertheless, uh, that is part of the reason why they were able to propose to build it a mile from a high school is because it was a renewable energy plant and not pegged as an incinerator. Um, and so the campaign was incredibly successful by getting everyone to divest, which eventually they did, and occupying at the end through civil disobedience, the office of the Secretary of the Environment, which is in the Maryland Department of the Environment building, Senator, was at the time the secretary was Secretary Grumbles, a bunch of youth from the movement occupied and demanded that Maryland Department of the Environment pulled the permit because they had expired on the permit to construct. There was no construction happening. And it was like this David versus Goliath because I don't think these youth ever imagined um, winning the campaign. Nevertheless, like, you know, galvanizing such attention and support for the campaign. And um, after the occupation and the civil disobedience, they pulled the permit and right now it's a brownfield site and there's been no development and no um, incinerator was built. Yeah, so that incinerator campaign that you just talked about was kind of the, the first of three main campaigns that the book talks about because after that, then they went on to working on a community land trust uh, and then a, a zero waste campaign. And it seems to me that each of those campaigns was kind of getting progressively deeper and going more to the root of the problems. So can you talk a bit about the students learning process that enabled them to develop over time a more sophisticated understanding of the problems facing their communities and how to address them? Sure. Um, so I think that, you know, the organization um, that was supporting the youth very much pulled from poor people's campaign and popular education models, kind of a Frarian 
uh, sort of sensibility, right, about um, poor people being able to use their life experiences uh, to teach, to think about systems of inequality and oppression. And so there were lots of tools that were used. I remember in the early days, there was something called a problem tree where the students would gather. And I wrote about this in the book because it was kind of fascinating to think about the roots of the problem versus the branches being the trees, right? Um, and so that got them to deeper systems thinking. We um, continue to do this kind of work with young people um, through the high school. And so we have done um games you know that teach students about the history of redlining a colleague of mine dr lawrence brown who wrote the black butterfly the harmful politics of race and space um in baltimore has really taken some of the concepts and ideas of residential and racial apartheid and put it into this really cool game that almost emulates like monopoly but you get different color codes and it really does teach students in an embodied way the history of redlining right and once you are marked as worthless and valueless how that has stigmatized communities and prevented them from healthy kind of growth right so i feel like each one of these either popular education tools or games has really given students that um, systems-based approach to thinking about environmental problems, but also to thinking about how urban planning and zoning intersect, how questions of food and food access, right, um, emanate out of just, um, you know, histories of uh, redlining, um, beyond zoning, like thinking about city council and government decisions. So I feel like each one of these tools has been pieces of a puzzle, right, that have fit together. Um, but it is a long process. And I don't want to like romanticize how hard it is to A, do popular education, but also B, to turn you know, students who are basically struggling to make ends meet and survive and get through high school to turn them into these kind of critical thinkers ready to engage in movement work. Uh, it takes a very long time. Sometimes we lose so many of the students to gun violence, to other forms of violence, to just getting a job that'll pay the bills. Um, you know, I think that there are many obstacles and challenges to doing this work. Work. And, you know, despite some of the really incredible successes, it's also their realities in this country to blaming poor people and internalizing racism and culture of poverty discourses where even with the high school students, very easy to see them blaming each other or blaming cultures or blaming, you know, race for the problems that exist in communities like Curtis Bay. So I would say that it takes investment mentorship, like fierce mentorship, out-of-classroom opportunities for students, leadership capacity, right? And like a train-the-trainer model, which is where senior organizers are able to come back and kind of mentor a younger generation, and that it evolves over time, but it's not a night-to-day, like an easy process for many of these young people. 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. What's the importance of the ties that these kids have to their neighborhoods? Like, why did they resist the idea that the solution is just to find a way to move away from a place that's so polluted? Yeah, so I think there's real ties geographically to neighborhoods in Baltimore. I came to learn that in 2012. Like if you grew up in East Baltimore, you know, there's rivalries between East Baltimore and West Baltimore. In the South Baltimore area and peninsula, it really does matter if you're from Cherry Hill versus Lakeland. These are all the different, I mean, it reflects race. It reflects ethnic context. It reflects even social support networks and fictive kin that have been established in those communities. So there's a real grounding, I think, in terms of space and place, you know, in a city like Baltimore. And, um, you know, it's similar. I take some organizers and students out to Appalachia to see um, mountaintop coal removal mining and to share struggles from urban areas to rural areas. And I think often um, about things organizers out there have said, like, why don't you just move if you know that, you know, your water is contaminated or your, um, livelihood is impacted or affected by mountaintop coal mining. And part of the answer for so many folks is like, A, it's not so easy to move, right? We don't have that, what, capacity economically or the flexibility. Um, And then the other is that, and I think this is the case for South Baltimore too, is that generations have lived in this area and there's a real sense of history and culture and um, even identities, right, that are wrapped up in these places. And so just to say, why don't you move is like shifting problems, right, as opposed to dealing with the systemic issues that lie under some of these problems. So many of the folks we work with out in Appalachia have select or they want to fight this because they believe in, you know, the Appalachian mountains and the livelihoods that once existed. Similar to Curtis Bay, it's like people have been displaced, but that was never a solution. They want to get at no community should experience these kind of industrial overburdens, right? Um, And no person should have to move or leave the community that their parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents lived in because of those historic ties. Yeah. And now I want to ask about your research methodology, which you describe as observant participation. So how is this different from classic participant observation or from just regular old participation? Right. So 
I think, you know, in part, being a member of this movement always had its, what, challenges as a researcher, you know, but at the same time, it led to, I guess, inquiry and discoveries that I feel like people studying movements from afar would never garner or have access to. And so I do think that some part of the, um, you know, methodology was being steeped in the political organizing, um, even being an actor. Like I remember one of the early first drafts of the book, my editor kept saying, like, who are you? How does the reader come to trust you? And you are a part of this, right? Like we want to understand and know like what roles you occupied and the spaces you filled. And so I think that that's the complex dimensions, which I try to get at of being an activist. Um, so it's not just studying from afar and that false sense of objectivity. I've never really believed in objective researchers. I think we are all subjective. We ask certain questions because of our historic, you know, experiences and our race, class, gender. And, you know, those questions are informed in part by what we believe in politically. So I've never been afraid to throw myself into the movement work and write about it at the same time. Right. And so for me, it's like, I was marching, I was risking arrest, I was taking my kids into spaces that could be considered dangerous for many folks, right? Um, they were babies when I started organizing with uh, Curtis Bay, I kind of grew up in these movement spaces. And so my intimate and personal life was embedded in this. And um, so I never thought of myself, and I don't think people do either, as a traditional researcher, right? Um, studying sort of from afar and asking questions. They've certainly experienced that. And many people have come and done that kind of classic participant observation. But I was much more embodied and engaged in the sense that I think, you know, those boundaries between, oh, don't share that with the researcher were just blurred, right? So I was able to get at some of the tensions and complex dynamics of movements that I experienced personally and were filled with great heart heartbreak and hardships for me. Um, so I think it's like a more authentic or genuine form. I, I personally believe, you know, there's no division. Like certainly every corporation that exists down there has scientists that they hire and it's steeped in their belief system, right? And so I don't have a real problem saying either as physical scientists or social scientists, we're coming at this and these questions. And for me, it's research for structural change. Like I very much locate myself within the tradition of participatory action research. And so it's not about research at a distance or research to advantage and propel me into a certain kind of career. It's really about how can the data advance the struggles that people are facing in these communities. Yeah, that makes a, a really nice segue into 
the next thing that I wanted to ask you about, because you talk about some problems that arose with one of the partner organizations that the students were working with, the Worker Justice Center, mm -hmm. uh, which faced a bunch of criticism for being dominated by middle-class white perspectives and kind of commodifying the work of these poor black youth activists for their own benefit. So mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit about kind of how that shook out and then how you avoided kind of replicating that same uh, pattern in your mm -hmm. own work? Sure. Um, so, yes, I think, you know, I referenced the fact that um, the partner organization uh, was very much like a working class kind of pe poor people's movement, you know, philosophy. But at the same time, by being on the inside, I was able to see everyday contradictions, right, um, in terms of the kinds of organizers who wrote the grants, who had access to resources and money. By and large, it was, you know, white uh, professionals, not the poor black and brown folks that formed the bases. And oftentimes they felt very manipulated and used and taken advantage of by this organization until eventually it all imploded, right? And I saw the very undemocratic way in which like boards are supposed to be set up for 501c3s or NGOs to hold folks accountable, but they were actually kind of rubber stamping you know, and not dealing with the violations that were happening on a daily basis. And so we all wrote different, you know, human um, resource sort of complaints about different organizers that were creating harm uh, to some of our young people in Curtis Bay. And it was pretty much ignored um, until finally we created an accountability team and kind of outed the organization in some respects and was calling for a restorative justice and an approach to really dealing with these issues. Because what I thought about a lot is if these hierarchies exist, if there's such grave inequities, like what's the world we're sort of creating if we're just reproducing, right, the same forms of stratification. And so it became this real issue of like, if we say we're horizontal and believe in participatory democracy, let's struggle with that. It's not easy, but let's not create those same hierarchies. But this organization very much had a power structure. Um, and so you know, I think that that process brought us all a lot closer together, particularly the South Baltimore Community Land Trust, because we were all kind of co-founding members when the accountability um, it evolved into a split. So we split off from the broader, you know, housing justice organization and started doing both zero waste work and housing justice work, but only focused on the South Baltimore Peninsula. And I think every day we've been cognizant of really not replicating or trying to have as much participation and, you know, creating a more cooperative and collective structure. I mean, no one's perfect. We're all human beings. So we slip back into old habits, certainly, and we deal with it. We lean into those tensions and we try to resolve them or we confront one another and hold each other accountable. But I do think that identifying what was wrong with the partner organization and the way they utilize Black communities as like pawns in this bigger game, we did not want to 
do that, right? Um, so we are trying to create a very different kind of culture and a much more grassroots culture, less of that NGO sort of style. Okay. So as we're moving towards the end of our time here, I wanted to give you an opportunity to give a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing this book. Oh my gosh, absolutely. So like, like first and foremost, I wrote this book during COVID at like 4 a.m. before my kids like got up for virtual school. So I feel like um, in some respects that like starting with the core of my family, like being patient and understanding that I was exhausted by 4 p.m. was because I had been up since 4 a.m. Um, So, you know, my children are much older now and I think they take great like my book launch was at Red Emma's last um, December. And, you know, for them to be nine now and 11 and watch, you know, a room full of organizers and people kind of come out for the book, they realize like the community, right, that stood behind me during this process, that it wasn't just them. And I think they appreciated and valued that. Um, and then obviously, Every one of my co-thinkers and organizers in the South Baltimore Land Trust had so much of an influence on this book. So I remember bringing chapters to them and talking through ideas. Um, and Marvin Hayes, who's the head of the Baltimore Compost Collective, whose actual real name is used in the book, was also quite valuable in trying to get the story right. Um and then there's a whole school uh, made up here called the Baltimore School of Geographers and public facing, I would say, academics who have that same political backbone. And that school was so important. These are my closest interlocutors and kind of comrades, right? And so I feel like even talking through land trusts in that group gave me more clarity. Um, and, and also it's been such a social support network and system. So the Baltimore school, every one of the folks that's involved in that kind of, um, way of thinking has been so influential in shaping the book. Okay. And that brings us to our traditional final question of the new books network, which is what are you working on next? So I am working on a historic political economy of um, coal right now. So every question, which you probably figured out already, comes out of my organizing and my activism. Um, and so because we've been involved right now in a huge battle against CSX, which is the major rail company, carting in open air coal from Appalachia to Curtis Bay, Baltimore. Um, the book is, I'm doing a lot of archival work right now, but the next project is really trying to map the whole commodity chain, right? From point of extraction to the peer and the human, the environmental, the social consequences of continuing to depend upon export oriented coal. Um, and then tracing outward towards export, like the spaces and places that particularly around steel, they're continuing to depend right upon our metallurgical coal. Um, and so, so much of the activism right now is about citizen science and proving that coal dust layers the homes, the alleys, the kitchens of so many residential um, homes 
in Curtis Bay and um, the, there's a civil action lawsuit amongst folks that has been filed against CSX and the coal company. But I really would like to think about how to build solidarity. And this is the more practical side. Like if we're to win against a billion dollar rail company, how do we build solidarity with laborers all along the commodity chain? What does that look like, right? From points of extraction all the way to export, because human beings, their communities, the air we breathe is being impacted by this. Um, so that's the structural change goal is like part of our organizing is figuring out how to do, build a much bigger movement where labor and environmental justice is aligned. And I think some of the calls recently around nationalizing rail and really rethinking, you know, corporate kind of consolidation of rail is all connected to these environmental justice concerns. Um, so it's a big project. It'll take me probably a long time to flesh some of this out, but I think it's also important for thinking about the kinds of much more sustainable futures we'd like to build. All right, well, if a book comes out of that, we'd love to have you back to talk about it. Sure. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Stenter. It was great talking to you, and I appreciate, uh, I'll look forward to hearing this. Yeah. This has been a conversation with Nicole Fabricant, author of Fighting to Breathe, Race, Toxicity, and the Rise of Youth Activism in Baltimore, published last year by University of California Press. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.